Okay. Let's uh, kick this thing off. So um, thank you to everyone who joined uh, last week for the first long COVID hour. It went so well, and there was so much interest in having more of these that I'm going to make it a weekly thing as long as there's interest in doing it. So um, moving forward, it'll be on Mondays at... Uh, 7.30 to 9 at this time, so um, going forward. But next week, there will not be a long COVID hour uh, in observance of Yom Kippur. Today, we have a guest speaker who's um, here to talk about his obsession, clinical trials. Um, Stephen from Post-Viral Trials News. I think a lot of you probably have seen him around on Twitter. He is very active and knows more than the rest of us, maybe the rest of us combined, about the current slate of clinical trials for post-viral conditions like long COVID, ME, POTS, dysautonomia, and others. Um, he is a six-year ME CFS and a two-and-a-half-year POTS patient who lives in New York City. He runs the Twitter account called Post Viral Trials and has been obsessively following news about and patient reports from clinical trials for long COVID and related diseases. And um, he's also just a, a, a great guy. I think um, a lot of you had, had a chance to interact with him and I hope you get more opportunities. So if you don't follow him already, go follow him now to get the latest news on long COVID clinical trials. Okay. Um, with that out of the way, I just wanted to um, give a little overview of how we're going to do this. We're going to start with some of the questions that I have for Stephen, and then some of the questions that were submitted in advance by the community. And then um, after that, we'll have plenty of time for a live Q&A for anyone here to ask additional questions. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah, and uh, just a reminder that this is a moderated uh, space. There are five rules now. There were four last time, but now there are five. Uh, <laughs> so the rules are no misinformation, no hate, no attacks on patients, allies, or other people in the space, no minimizing COVID or long COVID, and keep it to under three minutes for uninterrupted speaking time. Now, that last rule won't apply for our guest speaker, um, but for the live Q&A when we're having more of a conversation and we've got more people here, then I'll start enforcing that rule. Uh, okay, with that out of the way, um, I'll, I'll get this started and then start thinking of what questions um, you all have for Stephen. Cool. Uh, so let's start with just the basics in case there's anyone here who does not uh, follow post-viral trials as closely as uh, some of us do. What is a clinical trial? Yeah, so a clinical trial, um, I don't know what the broad definition is, but the ones that I've been focusing on are you know, what are called randomized controlled trials. Um, sort of like the gold standard in trials. I think everyone who's been like a patient for a while has noticed that, you know, over time someone says something works, everyone rushes to try it, maybe one or two people say it works, and then 
most people are like, oh, no, that, that didn't work at all. Um, and, you know, you read all these papers, you know, they call them like case series or a case study. Um, you know, they're sort of uncontrolled where, you know, the doctor gives the patient some drug. The doctor is, you know, really usually pretty gung-ho about it. And like inevitably in all these papers, you know, everyone responds wonderfully. Everyone is cured. Um, I won't like name any names, but I think we can all like you know, think of a couple instances like that. And that's not really like how, you know, that's not like the best way to do science. So, um, you know, the gold standard has been, you know, what's called a placebo controlled trial where, uh, you know, how the numbers can vary, but, you know, let's say half of the patients get essentially a sugar pill and then half the patients get the real thing. Nobody knows they're, they're double blinded, which means both the patient and the investigator, you know, the person running the trial does not know. And this is like super important because, you know, everyone runs a trial because they think it's going to work and you don't want them to like, you know, if they know that you're taking it, you know, people subconsciously just really want to win. They want to win for everyone. The doctors care a lot about the patients and they're sort of really invested in them getting better. But the idea of a, a randomized control trial is neither party knows what they're taking. And then, you know, you measure something, you know, these primary outcomes or secondary outcomes, the primary outcomes are sometimes called endpoints. Um, and, you know, you decide in advance what you want to measure, which is important. Um, and, you know, if the trial succeeds, it's because the people who got the drug or the treatment or the therapy or whatever um, improved and the ones who didn't, didn't improve. Like that's, that's ideally what you want to see. Um, so that is a trial and these are necessary uh, for a few things, but I think most importantly for us all to like get drugs approved and then have insurers actually cover them. Okay. Yeah. Perfect segue to my next question. So uh, you were talking about why clinical trials are important in general, but can you say more about why they're important specifically for patients with long COVID? Yeah, I mean, there's... Because it's something that we talk a lot about. In patients with long COVID have nothing, you know, like there's, there's, there are no currently approved drugs. Um, there's a lot of off-label treatments. I, you know, I think some of them probably work better than others, but, um, you know it's important because people want to get better. Like long COVID patients want to get better, you know, sort of pre COVID MECFS POTS patients want to get better. And especially I think for some of the newer, for drugs that are a not already approved or B maybe are approved, but they're what are called biologics, monoclonal antibodies or otherwise um, they're incredibly expensive um, in the U S a lot of these can run, you know, six, six figures a year. So for example, Vivgard, which is um, Fgard Tigabod, um, they or IVIG or I don't know Tamelumab. Um, these they're sorry Tamelumab's not approved. The other ones already approved for something though. They're just in incredibly expensive. Insurers will not cover them. And frankly, insurers like it, it doesn't make sense for a private or you know public insurer to cover these things. Like society only has so many resources, and like we can't spend them just you know giving like six figure monoclonal antibodies willy nilly that don't work. So they're important to get drugs approved and then to get access to drugs that are already approved, you know, drugs that are safe, but we don't know that they're efficacious. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, clinical trials are like up there as maybe the most important thing that we can push for as long COVID patients. Yeah, I, because yeah, yeah. They, they're, they're the path to treatment. Yeah, right? personally, I like the reason I got it so into this was I spent um, the, the first couple of years when I had ME, it was like what I would call very mild. I was actually still able to exercise. It was just like destroying me in retrospect. Um, but 
then I got pots and all, it got really serious because you get pots, right? Because every time you stand up, you're reminded that like, oh shit, you're really, really sick. Um, so I spent a lot of time trying to find treatments. I like traveled all over the world uh, trying to find treatments and I would not recommend that. Nothing, nothing worked. Um, and like, I, I did find some treatments closer to home that like worked a little and sort of, you know, like kept me mild, kept me able to like work a full-time job. But uh, I realized like the only hope for us is trials. Um, like I, I don't, I, I like I'm really thankful to every patient who's out there like trying things on their own. But um, I've kind of like lost faith in that, and I think we need you know like formal formal trial. We need to like let let the formal not let the formal trial process work. Like we need to encourage it, but it needs to it needs to happen, or else I, I don't think we're I don't think I don't think I am going to return to full health without it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. So just going back to like the basics of clinical trials for people who are not familiar with the technical terms. We all hear about phase one, phase two, phase three, They'll sometimes even phase four. They'll say those in, you know, uh, the news, headlines, press releases. What are those? What are those? Oh, phase phases? four, inshallah. Okay, so let's do phase one, two, and three <laughs> first. Phase four is after something's already improved, which I don't, I don't know much about because unfortunately I haven't gotten there. So phase one is, um, it's used to determine safety and dosage. It's a couple dozen patients. Um, I don't know a lot about these trials, these phase one trials. Um, I'm not sure that they're always even published. Uh, don't quote me on that. But um, then there's phase two, and this is what I've been like, th- this is what most of the ongoing ones are. Phase two is an efficacy, is a, is a trial to determine effectiveness and side effects for a drug. And these are typically a couple dozen patients, but usually under 100. Um, and these are the one, these, like most of the really good long COVID trials are um, phase two trials. And then typically um, after a phase two trial is successful. And, and by the way, these are uh, phase two and three, at least. I don't, I don't think phase one, but phase two and three are random are like blinded trials. So like how you know half or a third or whatever people are getting uh, the placebo. Okay, so phase two is effectiveness and side effects. This is under 100 patients. These are the ones that we're focusing on right now. And then phase three, if that's successful, sometimes they take things to a phase three, which is um, a much larger trial, usually, well, almost always a couple hundred, unless it's a really rare disease, which long COVID and ME and POTS are not. Um, and uh, they, they, they compare it to the existing standard of care um, in our case, there is no existing standard of care. I mean, like de facto patients are on low-dose naltrexone or mestinon or, you know, Adderall or whatever, but none of these are approved, so it would be against a placebo. Um, so for, you know, for post-viral conditions are, by the way, I'm using the word post-viral to mean like things like you get a virus and what happens after. I'm not, I'm not like making any judgments about what you know the etiology of the disease whether it's viral persistence reactivation autoimmunity immune dysfunction whatever i just use that term to mean like things that happen if you get a virus bad things happen post-viral so um for post-viral conditions a phase three trial is basically another effectiveness trial because there is no standard of care so like a typical phase three would be like god i i don't i don't know enough about other conditions to like give an example exactly but like you know, it's heart failure, you know, the best heart failure drug out there or the best couple, you run it against that and you want to prove that like, no, we can do even better than what's already on the market. Um, but in our case, you know, if something advances to a phase three, it would just be another effectiveness trial because nothing's approved for a phase two. 
So that's, and then that's one, two, and three. And then four is like a kind of trial that's run after a drug is already approved. Um, I, I don't exactly know what it's for. Um, I'm kind of, frankly, I'm kind of like new to all of this as well. So I don't, I haven't like looked into the phase fours that much. Um, but yeah, those are, that's phase one, two, and three. Okay. Got it. Cool. Um, so moving on, thank you for that explanation. What does the FDA typically need to see from clinical trials in order to approve new drugs? Like I assume yeah. safety and efficacy Certainly. in the broadest sense, yeah. but anything else. You Certainly they want to see, you know, the uh, phase one for sure. Um, generally they want to see like what they would hope for is a, you know, phase one, a phase two and a phase three. That said, there are times when the phase two and three can be combined. There are times when the condition is so urgent. There are times when there's so much pressure, political, not like partisan political, but just sort of, you know, a lot of people breathing down their necks, which I would, I would hope is the case right now, um, where sometimes they will approve things after just a phase two, ideally a large phase two, but typically they want to see results from a few hundred patients. They want a few hundred patients to be in the trial. Um, but it depends on the size. So for example, um, a, some of the biggest trials are for things like heart failure, where you're essentially waiting for patients to die and you want to see how many patients die on the placebo versus how many die on the, um, you know, on the treatment. Um, sometimes if you're looking for like cholesterol levels, it can be a little lower because, you know, everyone's got a cholesterol level. Um, so, you know, measuring outcomes like a heart attack, you would need a lot more patients because, you're waiting for people to die. And thankfully, even sick people don't die, you know, that often. Um, and there's also like an existing standard of care that you need to beat. Typically, when there is no existing standard of care for our case, you know, there's no existing approved treatments, you're trying to just beat the placebo and uh, beating a placebo is a lot easier. Um, so in general, I would say the number of patients is dependent on how well the thing works. And yeah, I guess how, how well it works over the existing treatments. So if there are no existing treatments and the drug works really, really well, then sometimes a smaller number of patients can be okay. This is sort of like a concept in statistics where like the stronger the effect, the lower the sample size you need to like determine it. Whereas, you know, if what you're finding is something, you know, makes everyone feel, you know, 13% better, you might need like a really large population to determine that. Um, and you know, your sort of like error bars are going to be much bigger, um, kind of embarrassing, but I failed statistics, even though my father is a statistician, so I shouldn't talk too much about the hardcore statistics of it, but in general, the more effective the drug is and the, the le less effective the existing treatments are, the lower the number of patients they want to see. Also, typically if a, if a condition is like fatal, like in a couple of years, like ALS, they'll sort of like lower the standard, um, you know, post-viral conditions are not historically thought of as fatal i'm sure they take years off of your life but you know people live decades and decades with them um that said uh you know there's like a politics that comes into all of this i think every you know the fda the fda the european medicines association swiss medic would all like to believe that they're you know sort of like insulated from pressure and they're just following the science but i think we all know that you know this is all like highly politicized and there are definitely things that patients can do to influence the outcome of these. Um, there was a, for anyone interested in that, there was a great New Yorker article on ALS and, you know, it like gained a lot of prominence from the ALS ice bucket challenge, which sounds absurd to say out loud, but it's true. Um, and they wrote a, it was like a big long article about it and patients really, I mean, ALS is a disease that kills you in a couple of years, but 
patients push to get drugs that frankly don't really seem that effective um, to be approved. Now, I would hope that the drugs that we would push for would be effective, but it, it just goes to show that like the standard is a little, uh, you know, it, it, it depends. Like it's everyone's, everyone's human and there's, um, you know, everyone's human and uh, the, the, the rules are broken sometimes. Yeah. So you brought up effect sizes. And um, one thing I was wondering is, does the effect size matter? Or as long as there is an effect and it's large enough with enough statistical power that you can say the effect is statistically significant? That's a good question. I, like that's good I, don't, I, don't, have a, I don't actually have a good answer for that. I, I think it doesn't really, like, as long as it's significant it, and, you know, it, it beats the current standard of care, I, I don't think it's supposed to matter. But I, I don't really know. I would guess that the effectiveness would sway them in terms of, you know, bending the rule and sort of allowing something after phase two, but I, I don't really know, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I was wondering, cause you know, I'm in the hope biosciences clinical trial as a participant and it's easy to imagine that we get to the end and it's like, it helps maybe a little. Yeah. And I wonder if that would be enough for the FDA. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know. I mean, certainly, certainly helping more would probably be better. Um, at, at least, at least in terms of getting something like a sort of accelerated approval. I think that yeah. once something you know passes its formal phase three and everything, I, I you know, there's certainly a lot of drugs out there that are sort of minimally effective and they get approved. So I, I don't think they're looking. I don't. Yeah. think They're necessarily. And you know, I think the whole idea is it's supposed to be an iterative process. You know, some drug comes out works a little bit and then you know ideally drug companies come out and with drugs that work better and better so i i think that it doesn't matter if you follow the formal you know the longest process but um maybe for an accelerated approval it does matter i think i, I don't really know though yeah speaking of those uh, you know existing yeah. approved drugs and the iterative process I, we hear all the time, not only about like the need for clinical trials to get drugs approved for the first time, but also if there are drugs that are already approved for one condition, we may not be able to, no. uh, for like, for some reason, we, we need to do it again for long COVID, you know, um, to like get an on-label indication for it. Why is it important that repurposed drugs that already have FDA approval and doctors are already per permitted to prescribe off-label that we need to do clinical trials for so those two. two reasons. I would say, first of all, like most doctors are highly conservative and do not experiment, do not prescribe off-label. I would say this is especially true outside of the United States and especially in lower-income countries. Um, you know, in the U.S., doctors are, you know, we have this private healthcare system. Doctors are relatively willing to experiment. I think most patients spend a lot of time in, you know, long COVID Twitter have noticed that the Americans get access to more drugs. And it's not only because of willingness to pay, like it, it is fairly easy in the United States to convince a doctor to prescribe you low dose naltrexone. That doesn't appear to be the case in the UK when the, on the NHS. Um, and then in lower income countries, I think they're basically totally unwilling to, you know, most doctors are totally unwilling to go it all out of like, you know, on label indications, by the way, the word indication basically means like a disease, like, uh, a disease for which a drug is indicated. Um, so, and then, you know, like, I think everyone here is a highly knowledgeable patient and really tuned in, but I think we all know people who had COVID and never really recovered and like 
aren't really that aggressive as patients and maybe they're suffering a lot. Maybe, you know, I know people who seem to be suffering more than I am, but are not seeking much treatment because it involves not just calling up, you know, your PCP, your primary care physician and asking them what you got for me, doc. But like, it involves a lot of work. Like you have to find the doctor who's willing to do it and, you know, get it. And I think most of us, you know, if you're listening to this, you're probably like obsessed enough to try to do it, but like most patients are not. And most doctors are not. So I think it's important, you know, for the sort of like, quote unquote, silent majority of patients who are not that aggressive, um, they need these on-label indications, even for something like low-dose naltrexone or mesinon or metadrine um, that are really cheap. Secondly, though, I, I said this earlier, but um, the biologics, the new drugs, the drugs still under patent are very expensive. And I guess the cheapest one that falls in this category would be evabradine. You know, it can be quite difficult to get evabradine covered in the United States by insurance. A lot of patients resort to like buying it from Canada. But then, you know, once you, and but evabradine is a small molecule drug, which means um, it's like a, the molecule is small, it's simple to synthesize. A biologic is um, typically synthesized from like a living organism. It's a very complex molecule. It's very expensive to produce. Like small molecule drugs, like the marginal, the more cost of, marginal cost of production that is to say like the cost to produce one more pill is like very 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 cheap and all of the money is in r&d the biologics most of the money is certainly in r&d but uh, most of the cost is in r&d but um the cost of production can also be quite high and they usually they need to be administered by you know intravenous infusion which you know is like a high labor cost so those drugs you will not get off label like um you know think even things like ivig you know, when patients get them, it's always for, I wouldn't say fully on label, but like you don't get it for POTS, you don't get it for MECFS, you get it for, you know, peripheral immune mediated small fiber neuropathy or chronic idiopathic demyelinating polyneuropathy, you know, like sort of on label or close to on label indications. Um, they're just too expensive. Like they're too expensive to be like experimenting with the way that we do with low dose naltrexone, for example. Um, so that's why. So it's number one, you know, the kind of people who are not as um, not as connected, not as privileged, you know, don't have the privilege to live in the United States and, you know, have access to this really expensive medical system, but ex medical system that is willing to experiment more than others. And then, you know, people who are just, for whatever reason, aggressive patients. Um, and then secondly, for the really expensive biologics and patented medications, it's just necessary financially. Yeah. Yeah. I know for like long COVID patients trying to get IVIG right now in the United States, it's possible, but because it's not an indication for IVIG, you kind of have to prove that like this individual patient has whatever unique characteristics that might make them benefit from IVIG. Yes. And you have to like prove it patient by patient. Yeah, I did it. I'm on IVIG and it is like, it is, it is not easy to get. Like it has to be kind of like you're a, a second job to like figure out, find a doctor to do it and then like find the right tests and, you know, hope that, hope that everything comes back abnormal in exactly the right way. And there was recently a consensus document put out by the, I don't remember what, the, the, the sort of like American Association of uh, Neuromuscular and Electro, I don't know, something like that the neurologist group, not the, not the main neurologist group, but a sort of subset that recommended actually not giving IVIG to people with small fiber neuropathy um, mediated by TSHDS or FGFR3 autoantibodies, which is the normal way. 
that most um, long COVID or ME or POTS patients get it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's dicey. And IVIG is like super expensive. It's like the same price as like Fgartigamod. It's um, like if you're, if you're on a proper dose, it's in the United States, it's like around half a million a year. And it's one of the few drugs that's actually not more expensive than in, in, in the United States than in elsewhere. Like it's pretty much the same price all around the world. So it's generally only available in the US and then like some of the German speaking countries um, for patients that are anything like us. Yeah, wow, half a million dollars. Yeah, I see it in my claims. <laughs> Powerful That's feeling. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. I, I will say in my case, um, I got low dose naltrexone, but it wasn't easy. I'm you know, I'm in the United States and like you said, it's a cheap small molecule drug and it's pretty safe. And it was pretty hard for me to get. Like I I it was hard to find a doctor that was willing to prescribe it. I ended up hiring a like health advocate out of pocket. And they were able to find me a doctor that could prescribe LDN. I think now that I'm more like enmeshed in the long COVID community, I can like find out from other patients who they go to, but it was pretty hard at the time. Yeah, I, I'm sorry. If I said it was easy, it's not easy, but um, it's, it's easier. It's easier in the United States than like you know, on, on, the, on, a, on the NHS in the UK or, you know, God forbid, I don't know. Yeah. In other countries. Yeah, I did manage to. Yeah, yeah, actually. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not easy. And then once you get it, you got to order from like a specialist pharmacy, and you know, because it's they don't they don't make the pills in the you know one milligram, four point right, five milligrams, whatever size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not easy, but you know, it's more accessible. And then you know, being in the United States, easier. Um. All right, moving on. Um. We already talked a little bit about how insurance companies use clinical trials to. Like once it's an FDA indication, then insurance companies are more likely to pay for it. But um, I'm wondering outside of that, like FDA thing, does doing clinical trials help get insurance coverage for treatments? Yeah, I mean, it helps. Like going through the formal approval process definitely helps. But also it seems like even smaller trials um, can help. Like even if it's not like an officially approved indication, you know, for example, like insurers will sometimes cover at least they did up until very recently, IVIG um, on the, you know, on the back of like a couple of, actually, I, I actually don't, you know what? I don't have a good answer to this one. Let's skip this one. Cause like outside of the formal okay. like process, like I, I'm not really sure how they decide. Like, I don't know how an insurer decides, okay, yeah, Vabradine will cover that for POTS. Uh, I mean, oftentimes they don't, but like sometimes they do. And I, I'm, I don't really know how that, like how the peer-to-peer process, peer-to-peer authorization process works very well. So should probably yeah. surely not speak to that one. It probably couldn't hurt, couldn't hurt. a clinical trial. No, yeah. It, it helps. It helps. It I just don't I just don't know to like yeah. what extent, like what exactly the bar is. Yeah. Okay. Well let's dive into the um like the actual treatments. Yes. So what are you watching closely? All right. Days? So I would say there's five that are of most interest and it's because they're hard hitting, but also like that they're just sort of like currently ongoing. And that's Amplogen, BC007, Vivgard, that's Fgartigamod. Um, Tamilimab and the Hope Bio stem cells. And then there's two more that have uh, either not yet started or I just haven't found any patients um, that are super interesting to me, which is the baricitinib trial, um, which is a JAK inhibitor, JAK tyke inhibitor, and um, the monoclonal antibody um, against SARS CoV 2, about the viral persistence one at UCSF. So I'm going to go through these quickly. So, first is Amplogen. Um, this is for post COVID quote-unquote chronic fatigue syndrome, like that's what's in the inclusion criteria. 
it uh, it has like antiviral and immunomodulatory properties. I think it's the mechanism of action is actually pretty unclear if it if it indeed works. Uh, there's like a long and stormy history with MECFS. They just wrapped up recruiting for this one. I believe about 80 patients. It's 12 weeks of infusions, twice a week, I think. Um, and I hope that results will be out by early 2024 based on how long it's going to take. The next one is BC007. This is the German one. Um, it's like a two-time infusion, and it's sort of um, it's it's for the trials for long COVID with fatigue. So I would call that post-COVID MECFS. Um, it neutralizes autoantibodies against G, a couple of G protein coupled receptors, which is sort of like an emerging um, field of research, especially in Germany and around there. Um, they just started recruiting. They have some very strict, perhaps overly strict um, criteria. You have to have been sick for at most one year. You have to test positive for these GPCR, you know, autoantibodies and with like a test that seems to be disqualifying a lot of people who tested positive with other kinds of assays. Um, they're recruiting 112 people. So I imagine it'll take a while since it's going very slowly. Um, they made some representations about when the readout, which is like the results, are going to come that I don't think are realistic, um, but hopefully we'll get something at least preliminary next year. Um, the next one, this is the most well-funded one. This is Vivgart, um, Fgartigamod is the um, generic name. Uh, this is for post-COVID POTS. It is, the drug is what's called an IgG degrader. This is a immunoglobulin G. It's a major type of um, antibody in the body. Um, this is a very successful drug for other indications by a very well-funded company, like one of the darlings of the biotech industry at the moment. Um, this one is a 30 or 40 something patient, 40 something patients, I think 42, uh, it's wrapping up recruiting in the United States. There's like almost like half a dozen centers or a dozen centers across the U S it's 12 weeks of weekly infusion. Hopefully the results will be out by mid 2024. I think they said late this year, or early next, but that was before that, that was a while ago. So I don't think it's still accurate. And there's Tamelamab, which is by, um, Genero, a Swiss French company. Um, this is for quote unquote neuropsychiatric long COVID. I wouldn't read too much into that though. I think they're pretty generic, you know, long COVID with properties of MECFS and POTS and that kind of thing. Um, it's recruiting in Switzerland, Spain, and Italy. Uh, the Swiss, the Swiss sites definitely have the most patients. I'm in a couple, I'm in like some Swiss Facebook group and I read it. Um, it, it, it targets overexpression of the HERV W protein, which is a human endogenous retro virus w protein um this has not been like a this has not been like one of the major uh things that researchers have been looking into but um it's something that this company is looking into uh it's a repurposed drug that was originally trialed for ms um it's taking a long time to recruit because they're looking for this protein which supposedly is in more long covid patients than non-long covid patients but is still only present in depends on who you ask like quarter or maybe less of all patients tested. These are monthly infusions at six months of them. Um, I think there might be some preliminary results next year, but I wouldn't be surprised if the final readout is until 2025. Um, and then there's Hope Bio's allogeneic stem cells that is like stem cells from other people. You could probably- This is the yeah, trial. This is the I'm one in. that you're in. You, could, you might be able to talk about this one more than I can. It's for generalized long COVID. Uh, I'm not too clear on how stem cells work. Um, they definitely have like a scammy reputation, but they are, um, you know, like they definitely work for some things. Like they've been approved for some things. It's not like all all stem cells are not scams, but a lot of stem cells are scams. Hope Bio seems to be like a very legit firm. They're running, you know, 
like a, a randomized control trial of, I think, 80 patients. And it's essentially targeting an autoimmune hypothesis. Um, they recently finished recruiting. Um, no word on when the readout will be, but I would guess mid-2024. Um, and then the, the other two that either haven't started or I haven't found any patients in them are AER002, which is an anti-SARS-CoV-2 monoclonal antibody by Arium Therapeutics. Um, this is targeting generalized long COVID, definitely a viral persistence um, hypothesis. And this is being led by a uh, University of California at San Francisco group with like Michael Paluzzo, uh, some other names that are escaping me now, and like Henrich and some others. Um, and these are, Steve Deeks. yes, yes, Steve Deeks. These are HIV AIDS researchers who have gotten interested in uh, lung COVID. So naturally they're sort of targeting a um, viral persistence thing. I think, um, I don't think this study is funded by patient-led research, but uh, they did another one looking for, oh God, I'm going to mess it up, uh, T-cell activation indicating persistent virus and found it, but also found it in non-long COVID patients who had COVID, um, which is a little confusing. Um, this is currently recruiting, I think. Um, they On the .gov site, they say results by mid-2025. I would expect them sooner, but who knows? And then the seventh one is baricitinib, which is an already approved drug for a couple of like autoimmune conditions that express themselves mainly on like on the skin. Um, this is a JAK slash type inhibitor, which is sort of like a new class of drugs. They all end in NIB, N-I-B. Um, these are small molecule drugs, but still quite expensive. Although if it is approved, uh, small molecule drugs can be synthesized easily um, by anybody with a lab. Not anybody in the lab, but a lot of people in labs. Um, this is actually two trials. So Carmen Scheibenbogen, who's like the main MECFS and now long COVID research in Germany at the Charité uh, Hospital in Berlin, which is like a very famous hospital in Berlin, has mentioned she wants to do a trial on a JAK slash inhibitor. And she told me that baricitinib was the one that she was considering. But then I think more further along is uh, Wes Ely, who's a doctor who previously specialized in post-ICU syndrome and thought long COVID was post-ICU syndrome, but quickly learned that most of us were never in the ICU, um, or most of you guys. I'm not a long COVID patient. Um, and he's at Vanderbilt in Nashville. Wes's study, it's further along. There's a lot of sites across the U.S. They're not yet recruiting. Uh, I think they're waiting for some like sign-offs. Um, this is like a, this would definitely be an autoimmune approach. And I think the reason they're doing this is because baricitinib turned out to be quite useful in acute COVID. So it seemed natural to try it in long COVID. Uh, yeah. So those are the, those are the seven that there's a lot more that other than that, but those are the seven that like are either currently or the seven most exciting ones, I would say. Yeah. Thanks for running us through those. I'll just add for that AER002. Uh, monoclonal antibody that 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 was partially funded oh. by patient led research collaborative and it has already started administering oh very cool all right sorry sorry thank you for correcting me hey, that's okay if i can uh, get ahead of post-viral trials news i'm like i'm doing great well. great 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 <laughs> yeah that one I, ha I haven't found any patients who are in it so i haven't it hasn't been like top of mind but if you are in it i'd lo love to talk to you and my, my understanding yeah. of that one is that, I mean, it would be great if it cured people's long COVID, but it's also, I, th I think it's sort of like a treatment as research. Like they're hoping like, you know, if we, if we give them these IVs and it, um, you know, it works temporarily, at least we've learned that like there's likely viral persistence. Is that, is that your understanding too? Yeah. Yeah. That's my understanding. And I think that's 
everything they do is they're trying yeah. to do both treatment and pathophysiological research with every study. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, uh, which I think is really cool. Yeah. Model. Yeah. I like, I don't know how realistic it is to be to administer that long term. I don't know. Maybe it is, but yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think Avi Nath at um, NIH is also doing that with the IVIG trial. Like, I don't think it's intended to be like to cure patients with like one or two infusions or whatever many is doing. I think it's mostly like, to do it, to see how they react, to like take some, you know, potential biomarker readings, et cetera. Um, yeah. Avi Nath at NIH is doing five days of IVIG yeah. over the course of yeah, one he's doing, week. He's doing, so once a day. He's doing five days. days in a total of, if you, if you follow IVIG, it's dosed in grams of IVIG per kilogram of body weight per month. And it's or like, that, that's how it's, that's how it's like, that's how you compare doses. And he's doing 0.4 a day for five days. So that's two grams per kilogram, which is like a, a high dose of IVIG, but only one month, which is a little strange because usually people say you got to stick on IVIG month for IVIG for I don't know, three, six, 12 months to see if it works. But a high dose, and I don't know, I, he certainly knows way more about this than me. So I, I trust that he knows what he's doing here, but I don't know what he's doing exactly. Okay, I'm going to try to corner you and see if I can get you to say which one you're most excited for. I will not. I will not. Uh, I will not. Um, and all I will right. not do that because, like, I I have been talking to patients in all the trials, and I don't want to. I don't want to speak about any particular. I will say that of the five, so that's everything minus monoclonal antibodies and baricitinib. There are patients in multiple trials who have reported, like, uh, well. There are patients in multiple trials who have recorded who have reported like full recoveries, and patients in most trials who have recorded who have reported like noticeable improvements. So I don't want to like say which one. However, okay, rather than rather than give you the one I'm most excited about, let me tell you something exciting about each one. Um, it's like a millennial participation trophies for everyone. So uh, the Fcard Tigamod uh, Vivgard trial. Um, this would establish post COVID POTS. Um, as and perhaps other like l diseases in the constellation, like ME/CFS or POTS, as an IgG-mediated autoimmune disease uh, in the same family as like myasthenia gravis. This would like sort of explain the disease in a way that we don't yet really understand. Um, and they sort of did this with um, CIDP, which is chronic idiopathic demyelinating polyneuropathy. Like they recently ran a trial. They did the phase three. It was quite large. And the patients, you know, a lot of them got a lot better, uh, which, you know, the I in CIDP stands for idiopathic, which means we don't understand where it comes from. And now that's not so accurate. We now know that it's an IgG mediated disease. So that's a very, very exciting, very well-funded company. So like, it's kind of like, I think they would run things very smoothly. I don't think there'd be a lot of like amplogen like drama in that one. Um, Amplogen. This one is obviously of great interest to MECFS. Um, it would it's it's exciting because you know it would sort of like close the book on it in a in a positive way. Although it would raise questions, like if it succeeded in long COVID, I think it would raise real questions and anger among MECFS patients about like what the hell were you guys doing all this time? Like this this whole thing worked this whole time. Patients with the company, or sorry, questions with the company and the FDA. Um, Tamelumab. If that succeeded, it would implicate HERVW protein overexpression. Um, in long COVID, which is kind of an out there theory, but it would be pretty like stunning, uh, stunning if it if it if it showed it. BCW BC007 is like exciting because it promises uh, like pretty much a total uh, total cure. It's also had kind of like a lot of drama, like the uh, Amplogen one. Um, 
And um, it's also exciting because they, they've done a compassionate use treatments, like open label ones before. So like the, uh, for example, I don't know that before they started the Vipgard trial or before they started the Tamilimab trial, I don't think they gave it to anyone just to see like if they reported any subjective improvements in like an open label that is to say without placebo trial, but um, that'd be exciting because it's secure. Uh, Hope Stem Cell is also exciting because it's secure and like uh, BC007, uh, the sponsor has, you know, she's claimed, Donna Chang has claimed that uh, she did, you know, well, she, she did do, uh, you know, a, a open label trial with about, I think, 10 patients. And she's, she said they had very good results. So that one's exciting for that reason. Monoclonal antibodies is exciting because it would prove viral, viral persistence, which I know is sort of like a fan favorite. And it's, I think even in MECFS is like, all is like what everyone's first suspicion is. Although over time that's kind of eroded. Um, Bursted and it would be exciting because it's like, it's, read, it's readily available. It's a small molecule. It could be rolled out to like developing countries who would have really struggled to pay for bio, uh, biologics. So anyway, that's what that's what's exciting about the seven. If uh, if any of them have strong results, I think they're all in phase one or phase two. Phase so two, if any yeah. of them have strong results in the current phase, could we see them getting approved and coming to market, or are patients going to be waiting for like a phase so three, which could take? Years? I would say normally, if you described a disease like this, you know, it's not fatal. We don't have a good understanding of the etiology. I would say it's unlikely. That said. Uh, it's not a normal, it's not just any, you know, it's not just like any, for example, autoimmune disease, right? It's like, it has uh, a lot of patients. Like, well, let's take myasthenia gravis. I think for myasthenia gravis, there's like a couple hundred thousand patients in the United States. You know, the low end estimates of prevalence of long COVID, it's in the low millions at least. So there's like a whole order of magnitude more. It's very, like, the patients are quite organized, quite vocal, that is, you guys, us. Um, so I think, given the public pressure on this one in particular, I think it's possible. Um, I think how likely would depend on a combination of, like we said earlier, how big the trial is and how good the results are. So, for example, the Tamilimab trial is the biggest one. That's 200 participants. It's across 13 sites, three countries. So if that showed amazing results with huge improvements then I think it's very likely that it would be approved. On the other end of the scale, you know, VivGuard is the smallest trial. It's only 42 patients, I think. So if it showed, you know, like, okay results, I think that one would be a little bit of a stretch. But, you know, I can't, like, if VivGuard showed amazing results, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would be enough. Like, especially, you know, certainly if it's statistically significant and they were, like, very good improvements... And patients made like a big fuss about it. I think so. I would say, I would say anything's possible. But the the more effective the drug and the bigger the trial, the more likely it is, and the more pressure patients put on it. Um, so I, I I wouldn't rule it out. Um, I would probably guess that it would be a fight either way. But you know that's what that's what we're all here for is a fight, I guess. And then, do you think like international borders will be an obstacle here if BC007 is curing people over in Germany and Switzerland? Will we, like will the FDA allow it into the US? Or I would is that will a trial have to be run in the US? I have heard once that they like the trials to be in the US, but I don't. I didn't. The, that source was not like a super great one, so I, I'm really not sure. I would guess it wouldn't be a huge barrier. Gino, though, for example, running the Tamilabab trial, 
which is in Spain, Italy, and Switzerland, has said that they would probably go for approval in those countries first. Um, so I imagine that it would probably help if the trial is in the country. I would, you know, if, if BC007 works, I would be quite surpri- surprised if, if the FDA were, like, forced them to do a trial here, especially since it's going to be, like, in a lot of countries. Like, a, it's already, they've already started dosing people in um, Austria and Germany. I think they got some approval in Switzerland. I, as I recall, they're also going to go for sites in Poland, Finland. I want to say Spain, but I can't really remember. Um, so the something that regulators also like to see is trials in a lot of different places. This is, I don't know, maybe patients, maybe like depending on your ethnic background, it has different effects. Although those are all Europe, so I'm not sure it matter much there. But like, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's the climate. Maybe it's this. I, this all seems a little silly with long COVID, but. Um, in general, they do like to see sites across a, a broad geographic area. So, you know, even the VivGuard trial, which is pretty small in terms of number of patients, does have, I think, 11 sites across the United States. You know, so you're going to get, you know, I don't know, San Diego, which has a large Latino population, and, you know, Houston, which has a large Black population, and, I don't know, Boston has a large white population, whatever. These are, I don't think, I don't, I don't think there's any racial differences in long COVID, but this is the kind of thing that they worry about sometimes. So um, I would say uh, as long as something is a multi-center trial, that's probably the most important thing. Unfortunately, like the Hope Bio, uh, Hope Bio one was not, but I think that the other reason they... Yeah, they're, they're making me fly out to Yeah, Houston yeah, but there are 80 patients. Houston's like an incredibly diverse place. There are 80 patients there. Um, I think another... Well, I shouldn't say that, I don't know. Uh, so I don't, I don't know. I, I would not expect it to be a huge barrier if one of the European trials, given that they're sort of like multi-country were, and fairly large were successful, I would, I would hope the FDA would approve it. And I'm sure long COVID patients and, you know, other patients would like fight like hell for it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Just one note on the, um, you know, the diversity issue is even in the United States, because clinic, participating in clinical trials is like risky and expensive and often you have to like travel far to get to trial sites. It's often only accessible to like very rich or at least upper middle class people. Yeah. And you end up not getting as diverse a group of people. Yeah, I would I would hope that there aren't really biological differences in long COVID. Like I would hope it doesn't matter, but it's unfortunate. You know, like it would definitely be better to have a more representative sample. Um like there's some diseases where it's where it matters, like I'm forgetting what's the what's the Ashkenazi Jewish one? Tay-Sachs. I don't know. Yeah, like there's some there's some like diseases that affect certain populations where I would imagine that would be more important. Um, but you know, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't really know. I would hope that there's none of that in long COVID, so it doesn't matter. But it is unfortunate. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, moving on. Um, assuming, you know, the current state of play, what can patients and like allies, our whole advocacy community and movement do to move this process along as quickly as humanly possible? I would, I would say from the American context, given that the trials are, given that, you know, the NIH just has so much money, the FDA is like such a juggernaut in this, uh, this whole realm is, um, I would say demand that the FDA, FDA like provide more guidance on these trials. I know that someone, um, Phyllis, I can't remember what her last name was, from uh, Bio, which is like a trade group 
was sort of complaining that the FDA was kind of just sitting back and waiting for people to come to them. Um, I, I would, I wish that they would speak more publicly about endpoints, biomarkers that they're looking for. It's often said that there aren't biomarkers for long COVID or ME-CFS or POTS. And like, I don't think that's fully true. Like POTS has a biomarker, which is the difference between how your heart rate when you sit and stand. Um, ME-CFS has had multiple, like multiple researchers point out differences in two-day CPET to like your VO2 max in a two-day CPET, um, and then there's some other things that haven't been like validated and by multiple groups, but are still possible biomarkers. Like David Sistrama who's used an invasive CPET. CPET stands for cardiopulmonary exercise test. Um, you know, obviously, MECFS and long COVID patients who are diagnosable with MECFS have like an aberrant um, response to exercise. It's kind of like the most debilitating part of the disease, right? Like PEM and overexertion. Um, and so like these exercise tests, uh, they're expensive and like patients understandably don't want to undergo them because they'll make them crash. But, you know, it is a, a fairly validated way to like detect, detect uh, anomalies in our bodies. Um, for POTS, the tilt table tests, and, you know, Vivgard is the only one running tilt tables on people. Um, it's the only one targeting POTS, but I mean... You know, POTS, MECFS, long COVID, like these all go together in a lot of patients. So um, I think it's unfortunate that the FDA isn't like talking about these. And then there's some more speculative ones like autoantibodies against G protein coupled receptors, which is like this huge field of research in Germany. And that, you know, BC007 or immunoadsorption immunoadsor um, are targeting this. It would be great if the NIH would spend a little more money on trying to validate these things. Like, the autoantibodies against G-protein coupled receptors have been a little controversial. You know, some groups say that they find them in POTS patients and ME patients in long COVID. I know Dysautonomia International funded a study where they found that one of the commercially available tests from Celltrend was just like everyone was testing positive for it, you know, even people who are totally well. Um, and then in the BC007 trial, you know, they're using some kind of test that is super strict and is eliminating a lot of patients. So it'd be good if there were more research on this. And this is something where the NIH could play a role. And this is like, this is a field that like sort of already exists. There's already researchers to fund. There's, um, you know, there's, there's like something to build on. You're not starting from nothing. Um, the other stuff that's interesting is like changes to blood vessels in your eyes. I think I read something today from the Technical University of Munich, um, some researchers there, but as I recall, there was another one that was looking at this, like Bettina Holberger at, um, at like the University of Erlangen or something. Um, yeah, so the eye clinic, the Augenklinik at the University of Erlangen, um, she was looking into this as well. So it would be nice if someone from the NIH tried to validate this stuff that has been coming out of Germany. Um, skin biopsies showing small fiber neuropathy, like these, this is you know, things that like smaller, smaller studies have found to be like abnormal in, I think, MECFS for POTS patients, but probably in long COVID patients is, I mean, certainly in a lot of long COVID patients, they have tingling and, you know, like the signs of small fiber neuropathy. So I would like the FDA to like, first of all, make a public statement that, you know, they understand it's a difficult disease to, you know, diagnose and treat, but that they're, you know, they're like eagerly awaiting trials. I think something generic like that would actually go a long way. And then, you know, to like engage with these groups, I, I don't know what's happening beyond behind the scenes, but it doesn't seem like it's quite enough. Um, and, you know, like come up with some 
some possible biomarkers in it. And then the NIH to like really fund more research into biomarkers with the idea of aiding, you know, aiding people who are doing trials. Like the NIH doesn't need to find, you know, uh, it would be great if researchers like found the drug, found exactly what was wrong, but like just being able to like validate some of these possible biomarkers would be like super, super useful for trials. And the FDA says, okay, we like the two-day CPAT. We want you to do two-day two CPATs. Maybe that's not appropriate, but, you know, tilt table tests. Um, this is something that, like, was just incredibly embarrassing for Recover. The fact that they got, you know, they spent, you know, they got $1.15 billion. They spent over half of it either doing or administering this observational study, and they didn't even look at it. They didn't even, well, actually, I've heard that they did do tilt table tests, but they certainly haven't published any results about it. But, like, that's the kind of, that's the kind of thing that could be a, you know, not a great biomarker, but like something, you know, something more than just these facet fatigue scores or compass 30, you know, these, these like surveys that they give patients, you know, to tell like, how are you functioning in your life? Um, something a little more objective. Um, so, so anyway, so that's what I like to see the FDA and NIH do. And I think patients can, you know, reach out and like, I would also encourage patients, like, it doesn't always matter if you've got the right email to the exact right person. Like, do saying something is better than saying nothing. So, like, you know, find find someone high up at the NIH, at the FDA, and say, like, we want to hear something from you. All right. Yeah, I like that. And maybe we can get some sort of coordinated uh, campaign going to do mm -hmm. that. Okay, I just want to run through, um, like, lightning around some of the questions that we got in advance on Twitter. So um, just quickly, is there a clinical trial for LDN going I didn't, on? I didn't look at this one up. There should be, but I don't know if there is. I remember hearing about, I uh, listened to some podcast about it, but I, it could have been even about like IBS or some other, I don't know. I don't know the answer. And then to answer your second one about nicotine patches, I don't know the answer to that either. I highly doubt there's a trial going on for nicotine patches. That would surprise me. Okay. Yeah. And um, why do you call it post-viral trials news when, in fact, it's most likely these conditions are caused by persistent virus? So, like, why post I would uh, I would dispute the premise of the question. I don't think that's necessarily the most likely. Um, it's a possibility, but in general, need a word for it. Infection-associated chronic illness, I think, covers way too many things. Like, I'm not covering Lyme studies. I'm not covering MS. You know, those are infection-associated chronic illnesses, too. Um, and I don't know what else to call it. So, post-viral it is. Okay. It's just your way of saying you're you're looking at things that happen COVID, after a virus, ME, you know, and maybe virus. during a virus. I don't know, but like you know, after it is known that someone got a virus, what you mm -hmm. know, these are these are diseases that are characterized that are like a very clear start with viruses, and I think that's that's like that's what unifies them. Pots, chronic, not not that everyone with MECFS or pots started with a virus, but I think a lot. Okay. Uh, lowest hanging fruit as far as a trial that could get off the ground relatively easily, but hasn't yet. And conversely, what's the stretch that seems most worth fighting? The lowest for? hanging fruit ones that I'm that are very frustrating to me are like low dose naltrexone and mestinon. Mestinon, I believe, is a very like mestinon has a lot of science behind it, and that David Sistrom has found that you know it, it can fix some of the uh, preload failure. I guess that's going on in patients. Um, and just anecdotally, I know a lot of people have taken mesonon. I benefit a lot of it. I'm on it. If I could only pick one drug, it would definitely be mesonon to stay on. And I, I find it very strange that no one's decided to run that trial. I think it speaks to the fact that, you know, for example, at Recover, they just didn't know what they were dealing with. They didn't realize that 
patients were going to become diagnosed or were already diagnosable as ME-CFS and that there were drugs out there um, that ME-CFS patients take that they should probably trial. So um, it would be like, it'd be like the standard, you know, like the most basic drugs that a patient can get. So naltrexone and then low-dose naltrexone and then the whole suite of POTS meds. So that's mestinon, midodrine, evabadrine, evabradine, fludrocortisone, perhaps beta blockers, um, all of those POTS drugs. Um, none of them are on label for POTS, but they're all pretty widely used for POTS. And I think, um, you know, POTS is like a major, major component of long COVID. You know, a lot of patients have it and a lot of the ones who don't think they have it also have it. So um, I think the POTS drugs. And then as for the stretch one, I don't know. Like I'm not, I, I, one of the reasons I'm following the trials and not like the kind of like basic research things that a lot of patients are into is that I don't understand the basic research that well. So I don't know that I could say maybe IVIG, like IVIG would be a stretch and that like, I don't know what you'd do if IVIG were proven to be effective in treating long COVID because I don't think there's enough blood plasma in the world to give even the American patients, you know, IVIG, certainly not a million of them. Um, but that would at least, it would at least suggest sort of like an autoimmune or immune mediated basis for the disease. Um, and, you know, at least, you know, if we had to prioritize it, I probably wouldn't deserve it, but, you know, maybe like more severe patients, you know, could be prioritized for it. So maybe I guess that's my stretch one. I have heard that the supply of IVIG in, in the U.S. at least is artificially restricted by the manufacturer. Um, so there may be a little bit more room to budge there than we realize. The economics of IVIG are fascinating. Uh, it is it is produced from blood plasma, and almost all of it is produced in the United States or a couple countries in Europe. I think, uh, I want to say Germany, Hungary, Slovakia, I don't know, some countries in, in Central Europe. And that's because we're the only countries that let um, the collectors of this plasma actually pay patients for it. So, you know, regular blood donations are often not paid or they're just sort of like very, you know, I don't know you get a, like a cracker or something. Um, and IVIG requires so much plasma that you cannot collect enough if you aren't paying people. And I understand the ethics issues involved with paying people because you end up getting lower income people who might be in, you know, you're, it's like, it's like a vampire, right? You're like taking their blood. On the other hand, there's no other way to get it. So for example, in France and the UK or in Australia, they don't allow paid donations of IV, of blood plasma to produce the IVIG. However, all of the IVIG that they use is from paid plasma donations in the United States. So I'm be veering a little off topic here, but I don't think the United States would be out of bounds in saying we're not going to export IVIG to countries that do not allow paid donations because it's not really fair that like they're all acting high and mighty and saying like, no, we can't, you can't pay for plasma donations, but yeah, we'll buy your IVIG that's produced for plasma donations. Like we haven't yet figured out a way to convince people to give the amounts of blood necessary to extract enough plasma to produce IVIG. So Anyway, my, my concern about the IVIG supply is more about the vast majority of countries in the world that do not allow the paid donations. And mm -hmm. it just, it seems unfair to me. Okay, I'm going to ask one last uh, question that was submitted in advance. And while I do that, if folks have um, questions that they want to get in during the live Q&A, start lining up. And by that, I mean, like, hit that request button. Okay, uh, this was also from Catherine... Uh, do you see much value in uncontrolled open label trials of the variety we see sometimes 
organized through a single clinician's practice? Do you see that data advancing larger trials or does it not have much impact? Wondering how worthwhile those efforts are. I would have said a while ago, I think it's valuable. Um, I still think it's worth it, but I'm more skeptical. I've just seen so many... um, I mean, I'll just give some examples. Like the triple therapy blood thinners, the apixaban, clopidogrel, and aspirin, um, you know, the, the group in South, you know, Yako Lobster in South Africa said that, published a paper with Risha Pretorius and, you know, they said that I, they gave it to dozens of patients and they all recovered. I've taken it. I know a lot of patients who have taken, I mean, I'm an ME-CFS patient. I'm not a lung cope patient, but I know a lot of lung cope patients who have taken it as well. And like, I don't know anyone who's made a full recovery. So I really like got to wonder what's going on. Um, the stellar ganglion block is another one where, you know, doctors who practice it say it works really well, but, you know, I know a lot of patients have gotten those and um, especially patients that I knew beforehand. Cause I think once, if you meet someone and they already did a treatment, then they're already sort of biased either in favor or against it. Like you, you might not have ever met them if they didn't do this treatment, right? Like they would have had no reason to be like speaking up in the Facebook group or whatever. But there are people that I know that I knew from before they did the treatment and then they did the treatment and they're like, eh, it didn't do anything. So I think they're valuable, but um, there's clearly a lot more bias in them than I thought. And I don't know if that bias is coming from the patients or from the doctors, probably from both. Um, But uh, I'm more skeptical of them than I once was. But I still think they're I still think they're valuable actually. Like some of these drug trials are happening because somebody, you know, sort of did an open label trial and found that it worked. So uh, BC007, at least the story they tell is that they gave it to someone who had I don't remember what the indication was, but they happened to have long COVID and whatever, you know, the initial indication they were targeting and it worked. So they decided we're gonna target long COVID. The other one is like hope bio, you know, the stem cells, like, you know. Donna did a, Donna Chang did a, you know, what was a 10 person open label trial and worked really well. So we moved on to the phase two. I don't know if those are both going to pan out, you know, in the phase two, I guess we'll, we'll see, but like, I, I see some value in them, but I think patients should be really skeptical and not like fly to another country like I did because they, because of, you know, one of these papers. Yeah. 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 It's almost like if it's worth studying, it's worth studying correctly. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, it looks like we do have a request. So it's all right with you. Yeah. Let's bring them on. Hi, Carolyn. Go ahead. Are you there, Carolyn? Okay. Until we get a response, I can throw another question at you. Hi. Um, Oh, hi, Carolyn. I wasn't sure if this was live or not. It's live. You're on the air. (laughs) Is this Daniel? Yeah, it's Daniel and Steven. Hi, Daniel and Steven. I follow you guys on Twitter. Oh, cool. Yeah. Do you have have a question about uh, clinical trials? Well, I just popped on. It just, or it just popped up. And um, so I'm not sure what you guys are talking about, but um, I know that the long COVID thing, right? Okay. All right. I'm going to um, ask uh, Stephen another question, okay. but thanks for joining us. Okay. I'll stay. I'll stay and listen. All right. Um, so we haven't talked about um, inclusion and exclusion criteria yet. 
how important are those to get right and how do they affect the trials and how do they affect like, you know, what we care about, which is how soon we're going to get effective treatments. Yeah. So the FDA, what they really want to see is like a really hard biomarker for something Um, that doesn't exist for these diseases. However, um, the closer you can get, the better. So I think the two most interesting ones here are like that have sort of found, let's say the three, that have found potential biomarkers are Tamelamab, BC007, and Vivgard, Fgartigamod. So Tamelamab, you know, their, their biomarker is the presence of this HERB-W protein, which I don't really understand, but, you know, it's a protein, it's in the blood, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing that clinicians are used to looking for. It would be very comfortable for doctors if they could run this test and, you know, find it. Um, BCW, BC007 also has this G protein coupled receptor autoantibodies that they're looking for. In both of these, I will say that I think there are questions as to um, like how easy it is to detect these things. I know in the G protein coupled receptors, like there's, I spoke about this earlier, there's all this drama about how to detect them. And, you know, maybe Berlin Cures, who's running the BC007 trial, is being too strict about it. Maybe, you know, the tests can be refined and they can find, oh, actually, there's way more patients with this that could be helped than not. But it is something that, you know, the FDA, the EMA, Swiss Medic will look at and will like. The other, you know, the Vivgard Fcartigamod trial has, you know, you, you need to pass the, or fail, however you want to look at it, the tilt table test, which is also subjective. It's not, it's not like, um, like there are people who will who don't have POTS who will show the change in heart rates. So for example, I I know people who like have had uh, like acute COVID, and I asked them like, "Can you stand up and measure your heart rate for me?" And their heart rate went up by forty beats per minute. So they are diagnosable from POTS in that sense. But POTS you need to have it needs to be sustained for a couple months or something. Um, but nevertheless, like it's something more than just filling out a survey. Um, the I will say that Tamelamab and, well, a couple of these have had an issue with looking for, they, they want people to have a positive PCR result, like positive for, you know, they wanted to show that you definitely had COVID, um, which is a little problematic because, well, first of all, I should say why I don't think it's problematic. A lot of patients feel like they're being excluded from the study. I'm actually not so worried about that. Like these, these trials are not for treatment. Like the goal is not to treat as many people as possible. The goal is to show that it works. And there are plenty of people who think they had COVID, but who probably didn't. You know, people who got sick, you know, in, I don't know, January 2020, and, you know, have all of these symptoms that are like long COVID, but, you know, a lot of long COVID symptoms are indistinguishable from pre-COVID at MECFS. So if it's true, for example, that it's, you know, due to viral persistence, and you have, you know, let's say the trial, let's say you're, you know, we're talking about the monoclonal antibody trial against SARS-CoV-2, you know, if you let patients into those trials who don't have positive PCR results, and it turned out they had HHV6 or EBV or some other virus, and let's say they do a viral persistence, but it's a herpes virus, it's not SARS-CoV-2, then like, that's really problematic. So I'm not worried about excluding patients. What I am worried about is it makes the trials harder to run. So Tamelamab, for example, they had a window. Oh, the other, the other thing that a lot of these trials, a couple of these trials have is a time limit on how long you could have been sick. So originally, Tamelamab had a 96-week, almost two-year limit. And then um, BC007 still has a one-year limit on how long you've been sick. And it's a little depressing for those of us who have been sick for a long time, because clearly what they're 
thing with these limits is, well, maybe if you've been sick for a long time, it's not as treatable. Now, that's a depressing thing to hear. But if it's true that it's more treatable in the short run than in the long run, then they really should be only looking at... I mean, if you want to get the drug approved, if you want the highest chances of approval, you should look at patients who have not been sick for very long. Now, when they're finally approved, often the approved indications are wider, right? So like, you know, even if the BC007 is approved and the trial is based on patients who've only been sick for a year, they're probably going to give it to patients who've been sick for longer than a year or two. I will also say... Um, I'm not encouraging anyone to do this. Certainly not. Please don't lie in a trial. But like once the drug is approved, you know, people are getting COVID left and right. People aren't testing positive. You know, people aren't taking PCRs anymore. There will be ways to get these drugs, even if you might not meet the technical qualifications. And that goes for ME-CFS, pre non-COVID ME-CFS patients as well. So I'm not worried about excluding patients. What I am worried about is it makes the trials hard to recruit for. So, for example, the Tamelamab trial, they had to drop the they had to drop the 96 week limit, and they also had to drop the PCR requirement. And they did this halfway through, so they lost a lot of time. So, like, you know, last winter, like not this past, well, I guess like almost a long time ago now, like over two and a half years ago, they started recruiting for this, and they sorry, one and a half years ago, they started recruiting for this, and they could have had the trial fully recruited. If they'd known in advance, look, we're not going to be able to get only patients with PCRs. We're not going to be able to get patients that have been sick for 96 weeks. Let's just open it up to everybody, which they ended up doing. But if they had done that from the beginning, it would have been better. I see why they did it, but I think in the future, other trials should learn. So, for example, BC007 still has these really strict requirements, and they're having a lot of trouble finding patients. So I think it's likely that they're going to open up the trial to people who have been sick for longer than a year or people who don't have positive PCRs. But like the sooner they can recognize that, the better, because, you know, time is ticking. So that's my thoughts on inclusion and exclusion criteria. Okay, just a couple counterpoints on the PCR positive argument, and then I'm going to bring Megan on. Um, so, you know, from a scientific perspective, I don't think you want to exclude everyone who doesn't have a PCR positive test because it's not random. It's going to bias the sample towards like people who haven't been, who, who didn't get sick in the first wave when PCR yeah. tests were harder to access people who got sick really recently when PCR tests are harder to access. And then like people from communities that couldn't access PCR tests or um, yeah, also the, the responsiveness of PCR tests, like the, the sensitivity varies by age and gender. So um, I think it'll end up biasing the sample. That, that's my two cents. I guess there, I mean, there, there are certainly arguments for and against. Like, yeah, that, that, that is all very true. Um, okay, let me bring on, oh, Megan, do you still want to come on? I saw that you had requested a second ago, but then um, just request again if you want to come back on. Go ahead, Stephen. Oh, um, I was going to say that, like, something I've seen that I am, makes me very uncomfortable and I'm not okay with, even though I am an ME patient, is I've seen patients who had post-viral issues before they got COVID weaseled their way into trials and they didn't need a PCR test, so they got in. Um, although I've also seen patients like, you know, I got COVID and I didn't get a PCR. It didn't, it didn't do anything to me that it wasn't already broken with me. But, you know, if I had gotten a PCR test, that wouldn't have been proof that I didn't have ME-CFS before. So 
I would say like I'm up for everyone doing what they got to do to get treatment, but in the trials, please, please don't lie to the investigators. I've seen it. I've seen it multiple times though, and yeah, requiring a PCR test is actually not a great way to stop that. But I do see why, especially in the beginning, they did it. At this point, yeah, I mean, it is a little like everyone's had COVID. Having COVID doesn't prove that you have long COVID. It doesn't prove that you weren't sick before. So yeah, I mean, the, I think the the logic of it is fading. I think it made more sense in the beginning, and now the the negatives, you know, the people that are being excluded, um, you know, are like yeah, the, the the negatives are definitely outweighing the positives. And like I like I said, I, I wish the BC 007 trial in particular would like give it up. And there are other ways to figure out if a patient had, you know, MECFS before they had um, COVID. You can like ask the secret doctor. I think they should. All right. Hopefully Berlin Cures is listening. I know it's the middle of the night there, but uh, (laughs) Megan, do you want to ask a question? Oh, you lost your, what happened? Um, Bring you back on. Go ahead, Megan. Like I am tried to um, sign up for the viral persistence, the three week Paxlovid test, you know, and I was asked mm. to, to hand over uh, a full year of health records, which would mean I'd have to connect all my clinicians to um, them. And then, you know, not even sure if I'm going to get the Paxlovid um, and it's Hugo Health, which is a private for-profit company. Of course, they have a lot of disclosures about privacy. Um, right now I'm in the final rounds of maybe getting into the IVIG NIH study, which I would just uplift Ooh. that the contact listed on the clinical trial site, Angelique Gavin, is extremely responsive and way more responsive than any other mm. trial I've reached out to. So if anyone's considering that, I would encourage you to reach out to Angelique. She's been been really available and they don't require as much paperwork. And now I'm starting to get concerned because all of these also have different rules about you can't participate if you either get a vaccine again. So if I wanted to, for example, get the Novavax um, updated vaccine, because I have a school-aged child <laughs> that goes to school every day where no one wears a mask except for him, God bless him, you know, I um, you know, can't get it. Or if I, God forbid, get COVID from my son again, um, you know, I won't be able to complete the trial. Is there a place anywhere that anyone's familiar with that like really just maps out all the current trials, both the inclusion and exclusion, and then any of these other rules or the the resourcing of submitting documentation? Because I just have to say, like as a single mom who's sick, like I can't even begin to submit everything that some of these studies re- require. So I don't know if you know of a resource where it maps out all these different components. Because I, mean, I feel like I'm in a World War II movie where they're like moving the pawns on the map, like trying to figure out. Like, yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, thanks. I think the best the best resource is just clinicaltrials.gov, which does collect a lot of information. It's not in the most like easy to look place. The thing that I don't think that it collects is this health record, you know, like what they're demanding of you. I actually have a question for you. Like, I don't even know what that means nowadays, your health record. Like I have like my chart accounts with like all, all three major networks of hospitals in New York City. Like, I don't even know how, like, did they tell you, like, what do you mean? Like, what, what do they mean by your health records? Uh, it looks like we lost Megan as a speaker. Oh. Yeah, I don't even know what that means. I mean... bring you back on. And Ezra, did you want to ask a question? Oh, wait, sorry. To just to answer, like, clinicaltrials.gov is the best place. It's not easy to use. And like, there's a lot of trials on there that are like bullshit. Like there's a lot of like, 
you know, behavioral trials or whatever. However, you can, you can adjust it by country. You can adjust it like searching. So obviously you only want to search in the country you're in, search the condition you have. You can also adjust it by like currently recruiting or not. You think you can adjust it by like, is it an interventional trial or just an observational trial? So like interventional, like, are you going to give me something or are you just going to want to like look at my blood or whatever? Um, but yeah, I, 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 when it comes to the actual like finer logistics of it, unfortunately, I don't know if anyone's got that. Um, and I've heard some weird things about those packs of trials. Like they're they're huge. They're they're like trying to get a lot of people. And like yeah, I've heard they're messy. And yeah, I I don't even know what that means to give like your health records. Like the with now that we have electronic health records, like just so much data is generated. And like I like does my chart, for example, you know that the Epic app thing do they even is there like a button where you can just download all your information i don't know that'd be cool um but that like raises questions for me and i sympathize with you i'm sorry uh yeah thanks for answering that it looks like we lost megan again ezra did you want to ask your question you don't have a question i always have more for steven uh hmm. ezra are you in it looks like we're the there's no ezra in the speaker list uh it's shown for me oh that's weird uh this is still only my second space so it's possible i've blown it um, all right. I don't know. Uh, I have other questions. So um, these were all long COVID trials that we've been talking about so far. Have you been following other non-long COVID trials in the post I, I wish. Um, there aren't a lot of other ones. I would say, oh, something that is kind of exciting. There's a couple of different trials going on are the um, transcutaneous vagal nerve stimulation trials. So that's like the little device that you clip on to like your earlobe and somewhere else. And it is this electrical pulse, which sounds a little bullshitty, but um, I believe there've been a couple of, if there was one study in a, in a rabbit model where they like actually gave rabbits pots and then, you know, like didn't cure the pots, but improved the pots. Um, I didn't even know a rabbit could stand up. So that was funny. Um, but yeah, I like David Petrino has a, um, TVNS for long COVID trial that has, I think, either definitely not recruiting anymore and may have finished. Um, and hopefully we'll get like the readout from that soon. That one's that's exciting. I believe I've seen another one too. I think I saw one in um, either like Greece or Istanbul. Uh, like, you know, there's definitely one abroad. Um, so I'm excited about the TVNS ones. Um, I would hope, I don't think this will be the case, but like I'm kind of holding out hope that the Vivgard phase three will open it up to all POTS patients and not just post-COVID. Um, although even if they don't, I'm fairly sure they're going to drop the PCR requirement. Um, I would also suspect, like one of the things about there not being a biomarker is that it also means that if a drug is approved, I would hope that it wouldn't be too hard for MECFS and POTS patients who did not have their disease to start with COVID or, you know, people who have issues after the vaccine uh, would be able to get access. 
So for example, you know, if, if, if let's say the uh, VivGuard trial for post-COVID POTS is successful and the drug is approved for post-COVID POTS, um, you know, how do you differentiate between post-COVID POTS and other kinds of POTS? So I would hope that, I mean, I'd hope that the FDA would slap an indication on it, slap a label on it that would open it up to all POTS patients, but even if not, you know, with some um, creative telling of events, I would hope that, you know, non-COVID POTS patients could also get access to it. Obviously, this doesn't work if one of the drugs is for viral persistence or viral persistence is found to be a, an issue. Um, but if it's not, then I would hope that like the other, you know, whether like by hook or by crook, uh, other patients can get access to it because certainly they've been waiting for a long time. All right. I'm going to try one more time to bring Ezra on. And then if that doesn't work, we're going to go to Lisa. Um, all right. I'm going to bring this on. I hear little, I hear literal crickets. <laughs> yeah, that's me. That's me. I got crickets out here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, you should be connected now if you want to ask. Hi. Um, I am low on spoons, but glad to be in this space. I just wanted to, um, answer a, kind of like what Megan was talking about with the Hugo health and the adding your records. Um, so that's part of the Yale listen study. Um, one of the doctors at Yale, actually, um, he and his wife created Hugo Health, and it's part of Kindred. Um, mm. So it sounds really difficult. <laughs> but um, so right now, you know, Akiko Asaki's in it, and they have like weekly um, uh, Kindred town halls or whatever with like Dr. Wes Ely and um, Akiko Iwasaki. And then as far as like, their long COVID trials right now they're doing Paxlovid. They just emailed out today to us that they're doing it in 48 States and also DC. So I'm signed up for that. I don't have a lot of hope about it, but yeah, it definitely did have a question. Like, are you planning on getting a vaccine soon? And then as far as like uploading your health data, um, it's, it's, I trust this one. I mean, like everybody's getting, you know, hacked in Vegas. This is like super hacked right now, but you know, so health data could always go either way, but you don't have to upload all of it. Um, but you can, like you were saying, like with the, my health app, you can um, like on the, on the page, it's a website for kindred um, Hugo Health, Yale Listen Study, it's all part of one, but you can go and like say, I'm at, um, most of my treatments are at Vanderbilt. So I threw, I have the Epic My Health Vanderbilt app and like all my long COVID stuff is through there. So I can go and search and connect and I can choose which parts that I, what part of my data that I want to upload. So, you know, if there's like a bunch of anxiety or, you know, whatever, something I don't want to upload, I don't have to. And then they also ask you questions um, like about your symptoms. But and then also as far as uploading um, health data, you can also with Hugo Health sync your Apple Watch data and then you can upload files. So if you had like a CT scan of your lungs in 2020, you can upload that file if you have a visible health one year of hrv or about 30 seconds left okay i was just saying it's like it's it's pretty easy you don't have to upload everything um but i've been in like clinic uh, like 
other clinical trials where you literally have had to, and this was back a while back, you had to fax everything in. But anyway, like the Yale Listen study, like they're going to do other trials, right? So right now it's just Paxlovid um, and it's a lot of education. So um, I kind of came in late on Megan's thing. But anyway, that's all I got. That's really interesting. Do you know when they're going to start giving out pills? That's a great question. They started and it's remote. So this is the great thing. You can be anywhere. They mail you the Paxlovid. And then also they're going, I know, um, I don't think she's in here, but some people in the Yale study have had their blood work done. And so literally like Quest or LabCorp in your town comes to your house and Mm. draws your blood as far as, and I just like literally this week sat down and said, okay, I'm going to do all the surveys. I'm going to upload as much as I want to, as much as I think is necessary as far as MRIs and my HRV and my aura ring stuff and whatever. Um, and so I applied for the Paxlovid. Um, I'm also, I applied for another one through visible. I can't remember which one it was, but anyway, um, as far as pills, I don't know. Cause they started with like three States and then they opened it up to more. And now I don't think they've officially announced. Um, and I can put in the, in the, ugh, I'm losing my words. In the chat. Yes, thank you. I can put the link to Kindred Hugo Health, and they're they're definitely recruiting. Like every Zoom that we have with uh, Akiko Iwasaki or anybody, or even like Petrino, will say like, "Yes, the Yale Listen study is still recruiting, and it's not just for Paxlovid. Like, there's going to be other things, and they're measuring our mm. symptoms and like our treatments and what's helped and what hasn't and all that. And then they make a point to tell you you can revoke that your data whenever you want to. Like they're very um, transparent about, about that. Um, and if you listen to the TLC sessions podcast, um, God, what's his name? His last name is Hemholtz. He's the one who developed it. And he's, he's just, he's one of these um, doctors. that's like Wes Ely. That's very compassionate and is very like patient centered. So um I really like that part of uh, the Yale Listen study. And hopefully, yes, they do get something besides Paxlovid. And right now I'm deciding, like, yeah, since we don't know when they're shipping out pills, and maybe some people already have been shipped out the pills, um, I'm waiting for Novavax. So, like, to me, that takes precedence over a Paxlovid study. But I don't know if I could put it on pause or not. But if you need to um, contact them with any questions, Talia um t-a-l-i-a at i think she's at hugohealth.org or dot com i don't know i can look for her information but if you even go to the website for the yellowson study they have a lot of good information and like they have recorded videos lisa can you uh can you put that in the uh replies in case people can catch I that i will absolutely do that my account is all right and then i'm gonna wrap up uh this session i'm sorry we didn't have more time for um asking lots of questions but uh like i said at the beginning steven post viral charles news is super active on twitter always responds to me when i add him so uh definitely add him with your questions or reply to the uh space and uh we'll check those and and try to get um responses to as many questions as we can um any last words steven 
Uh, I'm sorry that I'm not going to share any like particular experiences from the trials. I don't really have permission, but I will say like I I I feel relatively optimistic that at least one of them is going to show some results, and that you know I hope there's like more trials to come. But um, the you know five that are sort of currently ongoing, like I I feel I feel good about some of them. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, the, the the fact is, any clinical trials give me hope. The fact that there's like something still worth trying that we don't know yet doesn't work uh, definitely keeps me going, gives me hope. So I, I hope it gives others hope too. Um, all right, we'll we'll keep the conversation going um, on Twitter, and then there, like I said, no space next week unless I decide to do one like Tuesday or Wednesday, but it won't be on Monday. And then um, I wanted to say the space in two weeks from now, we're going to try doing like a uh, film club discussion. Maybe we'll do that once a month. And um, I'll, I'll post about this on Twitter. But just to give you a preview, I'm thinking we'll watch Unrest. We'll all watch it on our own time and then come back in a few weeks and have a film club discussion about that. And that'll be more open forum style where, uh, you know, anyone who comes will have more time to uh, talk in the space. So I hope that sounds good. Uh, as always, let me know if you have uh, feedback or suggestions. I said last time that my DMs were open and they turned out not to be, but uh, I think I fixed it. I think my DMs are open now. So, um, you know, feel free to at me or throw it into my DMs. And uh, definitely want to hear from all of you if you have ideas or suggestions for the long COVID hour. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night and stay safe.